We're in week seven of eight of our series, Welcome to Sound City, and week three of three of our little subunit within the series on our core doctrines, our core beliefs, and why they matter. So with that, Pastor Aaron, why don't you come, and for all of us, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, and that's where we'll be starting today. Thank you, brother. How are you doing this morning? You good? It's good to see you. I love you guys. I'm really thankful to be here with you. My name is Aaron. For those of you who have not yet met, one of the pastors here as well, and as Pastor Shane said, we're going through a sermon series called Welcome to Sound City. For us, this is kind of a foundations series as we are a newly relaunching and replanting church, and we are. We're in week seven of eight. We've got one more week. If you've missed uh, the previous ones, you can always find them on our website uh, if you want to be a part of that whole kind of membership process. But really the goal, I just want to reiterate this real quickly, the goal for this series is to serve us as a foundation series, but the, also the goal is for it to not be an infomercial for a church every week. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? Because what you do not need is for me or anyone else to stand up here and try to convince you how great our church is. What you do need is to hear how great of a Savior we have in Christ Jesus. But I'm preaching, and I'm not supposed to just yet. I'm just welcoming you. I want to give you a little bit of a snapshot since we're almost done with this sermon series, just kind of where we're going over the next few months. So real quickly, uh, next Sunday, which is June 14th, we will finish the Welcome to Sound City Bible Church series. Then on June 21st and 28th, uh, we are going to be doing the books of 2nd and 3rd John. So you can go back home to your friends and family and say, yes, each week we read a whole book of the Bible and uh, do so with a clean conscience. And uh, we're going we're gonna to do that because last fall we studied 1st John and those are the sequels and so we got to pay attention to those as well. Over the month of July, we're actually going to have a series of guest teachers. A few guys I'd like to point out real quick. One of them's name is Brian Gray and yes, that is my dad. So he'll be here on the 4th of July weekend. There's a man named Justin Schaefer. Anybody remember a guy named Justin Schaefer? He, uh, for those of you who don't know, he was a pastor here when we were Marshall Shoreline for many years. He is going to be coming up towards the end of the month to, month to preach. And then uh, a man named Wayne Taylor, who some of you actually know uh, pretty well. He used to be your pastor. He's a pastor at Calvary Church just right around the corner. He and I have developed a friendship over the last year. I really appreciate him a lot. And so he's going to be coming and preaching. Then in the month of August, we are going to do a six-week-long series on the Lord's Prayer. We're going to go line by line through the Lord's Prayer and really focus on the idea of prayer and how we as a church can grow as people of prayer. And then, here's the kind of the last piece that I know at least, is in September, we are going to begin a long series on the book of Hebrews. How long? I don't know, but probably almost a whole year. I cannot find any other pastor who has done it in fewer than 42 sermons. So... Yeah, exactly, right? The wave of shock that went through there. So that's kind of a snapshot of what's coming up for us for the next few months in terms of the preaching schedule. I'm really excited to dive in to today's topic with you. As Pastor Shane said, we're in 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to read through this entire passage. We'll pray. We'll look at a couple of key ideas from this passage and then really dive into some more of our doctrinal distinctives. So read with me if you would. 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 
But they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. God, each and every week when we gather together, we open up the pages of the scripture and we don't have to guess who you are. We don't have to guess your thoughts. We don't have to guess your will for us. God, you have been so gracious as to communicate all of that to us. And I pray today as we look throughout the scriptures at uh, more foundational doctrines for the life of a Christian and for the life of this church family, God, I pray that you would give each and every one of us soft, teachable, receptive hearts, Lord God. We all come today with a set of, of preconceived ideas in our minds, thoughts that we've picked up even from our culture or just from our own thoughts. God, we want to think your thoughts, not just our own thoughts. God, would you guard my lips? Would you help me to teach only that which is in line with the truth of your word? And would you help us all to give a lot of glory to Jesus in whose name we pray? And everybody said, amen. amen. Now I wanna start with this kind of question. I wanna get you thinking today about where we're gonna go I want you to think about this question. What is the kingdom of God? What does it mean to say that we await a kingdom that is yet to come, but we also exist in a kingdom that is already here? What does it mean that, that the kingdom of God is where righteousness rules, where God dwells? You know, think about this idea of rulership and kingship. It is a major theme in the Bible. You go back to uh, the Old Testament, the, the, the first picture of God ruling and reigning in the garden really is that of a king. This is a royal garden. And Adam and Eve violate his, his royal rules, as it were, his one rule. Then you go through the nation of Israel. They're, they're looking for a kingdom. Is this the time when the kingdom's going to come? But something's not quite right. There is a kingdom, but it just... Ah, it's not working right. Then the prophets, if you read through the Old Testament prophets, this idea of God ruling and reigning is a huge theme in the Bible. And then in the New Testament, Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts to say things like, the kingdom is at hand. Or I've come to preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And then you read the, the New Testament authors and they speak words of, of Jesus ruling and reigning. This idea of the kingdom is a huge, huge idea. 
And it's in this passage in, in 2 Peter that we're reading today where we see these ideas of the kingdom and a future coming day of judgment, but also a, a future day of restoration in which God will restore a new heavens and a new earth and that righteousness will, will be the ruling and reigning principle. I want to just, by way of introduction, I just want to pull four things out of this, this 2 Peter passage real briefly before we dive into kind of our doctrinal statement distinctives. The first thing I want you to see is this. Peter is addressing a community of people. He's addressing the church. He's not just writing an abstract letter. He's not just writing a thesis, you know, so he can get his master's degree. He's actually writing a group of people. He calls them what? What does he say multiple times in this passage? Beloved. I don't, I don't know about you, but that's not a term. I don't, I don't use that term with people that I don't love. I don't walk up to the grocery store uh, counter and say, hey, beloved, uh, how much do I owe for this uh, pack of gum, right? He's writing to a community of people. He's writing to a we. He even says we and you all. If you're able to look in the Greek, it's actually y'all, much to Pastor Travis's delight, right? <laughs> Second thing I want you to see from this is that the kingdom of God is coming. You know, we live in the overlap of the ages. When Jesus came, he said, the kingdom is here. And he did establish the kingdom. And yet we see that we're still waiting for the kingdom of God to come in fullness, when Jesus died, when Jesus rose again, he inaugurated the new kingdom, but we don't yet see all of its benefits being lived out. And so we're awaiting the day of Jesus' return. Third thing I want you to see from this passage in 2 Peter is that the kingdom was coming in due time. Well, how long until it comes? Great question. From the look of it, they were asking that question from the very earliest time in the Christian church. Second Peter was written within decades of Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. So it's been a few decades at this point, and people are starting to ask, hey, I thought Jesus was coming back. I thought he was going to establish the kingdom. It's been like 30 years. And here we are today. It's like, yeah, it's been like 2,000 years, and we're still waiting. And the, the, the teaching in this is that God is not slow. He is patient. Amen? God is not slow. He is patient. Why? Why is he patient? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish and he wants all to reach repentance. That's his heart anyway. Sometimes we think, God, why won't you just send your son back? Why won't Jesus return right now and establish everything in perfection? Well, because he is doing the work of saving people and that brings God a lot of delight. Number four, I want you to see that God cares how we live our lives until that day. He asked that question, you know, what kind of people ought you to be? In light of this coming of the kingdom, in light of this future day of judgment, how should you live your lives right now, right here, today? So as we go through our doctrinal distinctives, I want you to keep these kind of four principles in mind as we go forward. Now we're going to uh, kind of build on what we've done in previous weeks. In, in, in a few weeks ago, sorry, uh, two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Shane went through the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Scripture, and we discussed some thick, weighty theological topics such as the Trinity and the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and how God communicates to us through His Scriptures. And then last week, I covered uh, uh, how it is that God created and how we fell into sin and how uh, God has worked an amazing plan of redemption. And so now that we find ourselves on the other side of the cross of redemption, today what we're going to look at is what do we do while we wait for the kingdom to fully come? So we're going to look at five topics. We're going to look at the church, what is the church? We're going to look at ordinances specifically, or the sacraments, maybe you've heard them called that, specifically baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at the idea of marriage and sex, and we're also going to touch on death and the return of Jesus. So what's really great about this set of topics today is that 
Christians have never disagreed on anything in this list. So this is going to be easy. We'll have you out of here in time for an early brunch. It's going to be wonderful. Uh, just kidding. Buckle up your seatbelts. Here we go. Number one of today, number 11 overall, the church. Let me read this statement to you, and we'll pull out some, some main principles here. We believe, again, this is adapted from, not adapted from, this is from our doctrinal statement as a church that we're in the process of, of rolling out as an elder team. We believe the universal church, the body and bride of Christ, is a spiritual entity made up of all born-again persons in all places throughout all times. We believe that the local church is the visible expression of this universal church. The church is a committed assembly of professed believers in Jesus Christ who are voluntarily joined together in one locality for the purposes of glorifying God, the preaching of Jesus and his gospel, regular observing of the ordinances, fellowship, discipleship, and evangelism. We believe that committed active participation, as in covenant membership in a single local church, to be normative for the Christian. All right. Let's pull out some main points from this. Number one, I want you to see that the church is not a building or an event, but the church is a people. The church is not a building. And I think that many of us, having been around church for long enough, I think we're, we're starting to get that. I also think, though, that we're maybe more prone than ever to fall into the mindset that church is an event. Church is something we go to. 1 Peter 2, the Apostle Peter writes that, about the people of God, this is the language he uses about the church. Not a building, not an event, not something you go to, but he says this, you are a chosen race. Do you think of the people sitting around here in this room as a race of people? The people of God, the people who belong to Jesus? You are a royal priesthood. That means we are serving in vocation to God together. We are a holy nation. Look around, this is our nation. <laughs> Not very impressive, but it's all we've got, right? This is our nation, right? <laughs> We're not going to send anybody to the Olympics anytime soon, except for maybe Ethan. He's in good shape. <laughs> A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his light. Once you were not a people. There was a time when we were not a people. We did not belong to God, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church is not a building. The church is not an event. The church is a people. The capital C church, you know, if you uh, notice in our doctrinal statement, the word universal church, or meaning all of the people who have ever belonged to Jesus, who are truly born again, regenerated believers, that is the church. That is our people. You are a member of the capital C church. And I'll discuss more about the local, the smaller local church in just a moment, but I want you to understand that we are part of something much, much bigger than just in this room. Right now, across the world, there are people gathering together to worship Jesus. And there are brothers and there are sisters in Christ. We're a people. It's not an event. I'll give you, I'll give you a, an example maybe or something to kind of think through. Yesterday I went to a, a family event of sorts. It was a graduation party for one of my wife's uh, cousins. And so I knew some of the people there, but there was extended family, both sides of the family, friends from school, etc. And so I was sitting and chatting with this one sweet little older lady, and she was trying to put together who everybody belonged to and how the families were all organized. She did not say to me, what family do you go to? She said to me, what family are you a part of? And I've actually thought that has been a very helpful thing for me, even in the last few months. It's just a practical tip. But when you talk about the church, how about you say, 
instead of what church do you go to? What church do you belong to? What church are you a part of? Because that's the biblical picture. We're not going to church. We are the church as we go. Or another just practical tip, hey, let's meet at the church. No, let's meet at the church building because you are the church and when you meet together, Jesus is with you. So just practical tips, simple things you can do with your verbiage to remind yourself that the church is a people. Second thing I want you to see is this, that the church, this is kind of nerdy and any of our math guys are like this, the church is a subset of but not equal to the kingdom of God, okay? I spent way too much time researching what symbol I wanted to put in those slides for you guys. <laughs> uh, really, my engineer father would be so proud of me right now. What I want you to understand is this. The church is not equivalent to the kingdom of God. Those two things are not the exact same. However, the church is a picture of and an expression of the kingdom that is to come. Okay? I want you to see that the church does not equal the kingdom, but when the church is at its best... We start living out all of those one another's in the New Testament. We start looking more like the people that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. We start loving our enemies. We start carrying people's burdens, not just one mile, but two. We start to look like the kingdom. Now, you and I, until the day that we see Jesus face to face, will always be fighting against the flesh. We'll always be fighting against the remaining sin. We as people are called to forgive one another and bear one another's burdens. That means we have to put up with one another and uh, repent when we're wrong. But I have seen the church rally around people. I have seen someone be broke and destitute and in bed rest and a whole church rally around and pay people's bills for five months so that the family was, was taken care of. I have seen someone in prison set, and I'm, I mean this literally, set an, a visitation attendance record because so many people from the church went to visit them in prison. So I'm not saying that the church is the kingdom. I'm not saying we should have some expectation that if we just get it all right, then Jesus will come back. What I am saying is in its best, the church is an expression of the kingdom that is yet to come. Number three, there are specific purposes that God has given to the church, and they're his purposes, and we don't get to mess with them. Things like worship, things like practicing of the ordinances, things like fellowship, discipleship, evangelism. And I say this to you because as a church, there's no shortage of good things that we can be involved in, but there are things that God has specifically given to the church and to the church only and we dare not be so arrogant or presumptuous to say, God, we're going to decide what we want to do with our church. Let me, let me give you just one example, okay? I'll give you one example. Politics, right? As if I didn't have enough controversial stuff to cover later in the sermon, let's just talk about politics for a brief moment. I think it is a beautiful and wonderful thing that in the United States of America, we have an opportunity to vote, to be involved in the political system. However, the kingdoms of this world belong to this world, and while we as citizens temporarily of the kingdoms of the earth can be involved in those things, the church operates according to a whole different set of, of principles. Amen? As such, the church, uh, we should not be involved in campaigning and politicking and uh, tax reform and those sorts of things as the official church because that is not one of the things that God has given to his church. You are free as a Christian to participate to the fullest, including running for public office, like crazy people like Dale over there, right? You are welcome to do that. That is a good and godly and wonderful thing. If you live in Briar, vote for Dale Kamick, right? <laughs> Amen, right? Thank you. But what, I'm, what I am saying is as the church, as an entity, we have been given specific purposes from God and we are called to stay on those things and not be distracted with other worldly pursuits. So again, amen from anybody on that one, right? Number four, I want you to see this, that it, Christians, it is normal for Christians to belong. 
Now, a minute ago, I mentioned the, the capital C church or the universal church. Or actually, if you want another word, uh, Catholic is actually a word that means universal. And not specifically Roman Catholic, but the word Catholic, uh, if you see it in the Apostles' Creed, it refers to the universal church. But it's not just enough to belong to the universal church. We are called by God to belong to specific local expressions of that universal church. When you read through the New Testament, you see things like in Galatians. Paul writes his letter. He says, to the churches that are in Galatia. He knows specific individuals. He knows specific leaders. He knows specific groups that meet in this city of Galatia. Or when you read Jesus' words in Revelation to the seven churches, he says to the church in Laodicea, to the church in, in Philadelphia, to the church in Sardis, he writes to specific groups of people in specific locations and at specific times for the purpose of knowing one another and being on the mission of Jesus together. Belonging to a church, belonging to a group of people is the assumption in the pages of the New Testament. And I would submit to you that we as a culture are among one of the most individualistic cultures that maybe has ever existed in the history of the world. Our baseline assumption is I am the captain of my own soul. I'm the master of my own fate and my own destiny. And if I get into a jam, it's nice to have some people there, but that's not really fundamental to who I am as a person. I would say to you that the biblical picture flies in the face of that. In particular, in Hebrews 10, says that we should uh, not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but it actually says this. You, you've probably heard that verse, don't neglect to meet together as the habit of some, but what does he say? But all the more as you see the day drawing near. Meaning, as we're talking about the kingdom of God coming, there's an assumption that you are going to need to rely on God's people more and more and more as you go forward. The picture is not like a little children who a little child who learns to rely less and less and less on their parents. The picture is more like a people of, of God who need them, need each other more and more and more as the day of Christ approaches. Or Hebrews 13, just a, a very a weighty passage for me and for your other pastors. It says this. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Man, I'm just, it's like the saying goes, when you're on thin ice, you might as well dance, right? So we'll just hit all of them. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I'm not saying this to, to try to sound important or anything, but I wrestle with this verse almost on a daily basis. Who am I as a pastor? Who are we as a, as a team of elders, as a team of pastors responsible for? Who am I watching over their soul? And who am I going to stand before Jesus one day and give an account that I've been watching over them? And the first part, though, it's actually addressed to the members is just the people. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. Be a part. Let the leaders know, hey, you're watching over my soul. I'm here. It's weighty for all of us. So that's the church. God has a people. God has a, a called out royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people for his own possession. So now what do we do? Now we do many things, but want to highlight two specific ordinances, two specific practices that Jesus himself instituted, Okay. Let me read this statement to you. Jesus established two practices or ordinances that should be celebrated and regularly observed by Christians. Baptism, which symbolizes the burial and resurrection of Jesus, is to be observed after one has repented of sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper or communion, which represents the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, is to be practiced regularly by all Christians. Okay, let me draw out three main points on these ordinances. The first one is this, that there are two official ordinances. 
There are two official practices, or if you want to use the, the older-fashioned word, sacraments, sacred actions, that the church should practice. And here we would lovingly disagree with our Catholic friends and neighbors. They have seven ordinances. Um, almost all of them are actually good things. There's nothing wrong with marriage or there's nothing wrong with being called into the work of the ministry. But the reason why we hold to two official ordinances because these are the only two that the Lord Jesus himself said, do these things. They're things that Jesus himself instituted. They're things that Jesus himself practiced. And they're things that Jesus gave a specific command and said, practice these things. And I want you to understand that these ordinances are very, very much tied to the gospel. When Christians gather together and we, we read the word of God, we hear God speaking to us. And when we pray, we, we speak to God. That's the ministry of the word. God talking to us, us talking to God. When we celebrate the ordinances, however, it's like the word made visible. I like to think of God as the best teacher ever because he gives us an object lesson. When we baptize somebody, when they go under the water, it symbolizes that Jesus died and was buried in the ground, that he went under the waters of judgment, even waters of judgment that we just read about in 2 Peter, that, that Jesus died. And we identify with his death, the life that we live. We don't live to ourselves anymore. When we come up out of the water, we're identifying with Jesus' resurrection and his victory over death and his victory over the grave. It's a picture of the gospel. It's the gospel being lived out in technicolor. When we celebrate communion, we celebrate the Lord's table. It's the, the bread is a, a tangible way to say, God, my creator took on human flesh. He became a man. He, he came and dwelt in the neighborhood with us. And his body was broken for me. When we dip it into the wine or to the juice, depending on your conscience, we say that his blood was spilled. And it's a picture of the gospel because Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So the ordinances, these are not just things we do just because these are ways that we live out the gospel message. And I would even go so far as to say that these are not just human activities we do, but they're actually ways that God ministers his grace to us. That as we celebrate the Lord's table, as we ourselves are either baptized or we witness others being baptized, our faith is strengthened. Our hearts are encouraged and we grow in his grace. It's not, it's not magic. It's not, uh, you know, osmosis, but it's a way that the Holy Spirit ministers his grace to our hearts. So there's only two ordinances, and again, like I sarcastically said, Christians never fight about these two official ordinances, so let me just briefly make a statement on each one. We as a church, we hold to what's known as a believer's baptism. There are basically two primary views on baptism. One is that, um, uh, the, it's called a infant baptism, or if you want to use the old-fashioned term, it's pedo-baptism, you may hear me say that. And that is, in the Old Testament, the people of God were marked by the sign of circumcision. The, the males were circumcised as infants, and that marked them as the people of God. And in the New Testament, circumcision is, is done away with, and now the people of God are marked by baptism, and as such, that symbol and sign should be applied to infants as well. The credo-baptistic side, which myself and the other elders of this church hold to, is that all of the examples in the New Testament show that people are baptized after they make a profession of faith in Jesus, that they identify the fact that they are a sinner, that they need God's grace, that they understand that Jesus is the Savior, and they make a public profession of faith, and then they are baptized, every single one. And I would also say that the, the Old Testament counterpart of circumcision, the New Testament counterpart, is not water baptism, it's a circumcision of the heart. It's a regeneration of the heart. That's the, the matching up part. 
and that the new, the new covenant and the old covenant have much more um, disparity maybe than that. They're not quite as uh, a singular line of, of thought. Now, there's a lot, a lot, a lot I could say on that, but all I want to say is that we as a church, we hold to a believer's baptism, and if you are someone who has uh, pedo-baptistic tendencies, we love you, and we want to talk about it, and I have studied fairly extensively, actually even in the last year on the subject, and we want to be gracious. There are many good, wonderful people who love God, who love his word, who are saved by Jesus, who are regenerated, born-again Christians who would disagree with what I just said, and that's okay because this is not one of our absolute essentials of the faith. Can we be that? Can we be a gracious, credo-baptistic church, Sound City? All right. Third is this, Lord's Supper regularly. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. the Apostle Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's that, there's that idea of, again, it's a picture of the gospel. So we do it regularly. The Bible doesn't say how often. Churches disagree. I grew up in a church that practiced the Lord's table quarterly. I know some of you uh, went to churches that did it maybe once a year. As a church, we celebrate communion every single week, and I love that because it is a picture of the gospel lived out in tangible form. Our, our big danger with doing it that regularly is that we could just get into routine and think, oh, it's just communion. We just do it again. But that we actually want to invest our hearts in it as an act of worship and as a way of receiving his grace. So we practice the Lord's Supper regularly. And I want you to think of it too. There's, there's a past, there's a present, and there's a future element to it. The past is this. It symbolizes the death of Jesus, a past action that's done. It's present because it means that we're present with Jesus and we're present with his people. We're sharing a meal together. But there's a future element to communion because it says that one day after Christ returns, we're gonna share in a feast together. A feast that will blow every other party you've ever seen or heard of out of the water because it will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will feast with our Lord in Zion, as it says in the Psalms and as it says in Isaiah, that in the city of God, in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, we will feast with him. And so this communion is an, an act of a future, it's a, it's a reminder of future reality. Okay, so we're a church, we're a people, we're called out. We have these ordinances, these practices that we do, Okay. Let's pause for a minute. What about my wife and I? What about marriage? What about God's plan for humanity? Let me read this to you. You ready? Here we go. After the creation of our first parents, Adam and Eve, God instituted marriage as a covenantal whole life union between a man and a woman. Therefore, marriage defined in this way is the only kind of marriage sanctioned or ordained by the church. As such, Marriage is the only place that sexual activity of any sort or kind is permissible. God's design for human sexuality as set forth in scripture is for complete fidelity, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, within heterosexual and monogamous marriage. Regardless of one's marital status, God's will is for complete abstention from sinful, sexually immoral practices such as lust, fornication, adultery, and pornography. As with all of God's plans, his plan for marriage and sexuality is the best of all possible plans for such matters, bringing him the most glory while protecting his people and bringing them the greatest joy. All right, I'm going to draw out four points from this uh, written statement that we have as a church. First one is this. Marriage and sex are God's idea, okay? So let's just start with the good news, okay? The good news is this. 
Some of you have been raised maybe due to uh, family or tradition or church or whatever it was with this idea that sex is bad and dirty and gross and so you only save it for the one that you love, right? Like it's this shameful thing. The church doesn't talk about it. We don't need to deal with it. But the the point of this is, is that in Genesis 2, it is God himself who creates mankind, male and female. He blesses them. And the first commandment he gives them is be fruitful and multiply. And yes, that includes what you think it includes. There is an entire book of the Bible, Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, which is devoted to romantic love between a man and a woman. And in fact, this, this whole idea of romance and romantic love between a husband and a wife is a picture, again, of the gospel. That God chooses a people, that we are united to Christ, that the, the party at the end of the days is referred to as the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's a picture of the gospel. Husbands, as you love your wives, wives, as you uh, love and submit to your husbands. Ephesians 5 talks about that's a picture of the gospel. And so I need you to understand that marriage and sex, both of those together in that order, are God's idea. They belong to God. They are not something that our culture came up with. They are not a product of human civilization or evolution. They are things that God himself ordained, God himself blessed. And at the end of his creation, he said, it's very good. And I would even just, I would even just encourage you to think about this, especially when it comes to sexuality. Think about the power that God has given to the human race that we could create another human being, another life. And think about this. The greatest act of pleasure, the most pleasurable experience that human beings can engage in will result in creation of another human being. What does that teach us about the, the nature and the character of God as our creator? What does that teach us about his heart of love for us? There's a lot there. There's children in the room, so I'm gonna move on. <laughs> I want you to see that marriage is comprised of three primary elements. It's covenant, it's whole life, and it is, by nature, male-female. Covenant means uh, it's not a contract. It's not an if you do X, I will do Y. If you do this, I will do that. Uh, we're going to actually spend our entire sermon next week looking at the nature of covenant and what it means to be covenant people. So I'm not going to explain in great detail, but I will say this. Covenant is different than a contract. Contract is inherently defensive. How can I get out of this? If they do me wrong, how do I, you know, run? Covenant says, no, I'm sticking with you even when you do me wrong. God's love is covenantal. I want you to see that marriage is a whole life union. In that verse in, in Genesis 2, uh, it says that uh, they will be joined together and the two shall become one flesh. When we hear the word flesh, we instantly think of kind of the bodies, but biblically, that word gets used in a larger context for just the person, the, the, the who they are. It's not just the body. So yes, there is a joining together physically that God has designed for male and female to come together, but we're talking about a whole life union. This means that I get nervous when I'm doing marriage counseling when couples have separate banking accounts. It means I get a little itchy when I ask husbands and wives, well, how often do you pray together? Well, never. This is a whole life union that God wants for husbands and wives. And it is, by his design, male and female. And I know that our culture says otherwise. I know that many of you, like me, know and love people who are attracted to members of the same sex. But God's design from the beginning was that we would be created male and female and that sexuality and marriage would be expressed in that way. And Jesus himself affirms it in Matthew 
19. Jesus himself speaks the words of affirmation of the biblical picture going all the way back into Genesis that God from the beginning created the male and female. And he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That is the nature of what marriage is. Number three, I want you to see that sexual sin is a very real and a very serious problem. Again, I would say uh, sexual experience is the most pleasurable thing that, that human beings can uh, enjoy and can experience. But the longer I am in, in ministry, the more I'm convinced that the deepest hurts, the deepest wounds, the deepest pains come in people's lives due to sexual sin, whether your own or someone else's. Meeting with people who are victims of, of rape or molestation, people who are devastated because their spouse was unfaithful, people who were raised with only one parent because of someone's infidelity or addiction to sexual sin. It is devastating. Sexual sin is devastating. That would be one of the objections that our culture would even raise. Well, isn't your you know, biblical view of marriage just outdated and old-fashioned? I'd say, well, you let me know when people move past heartbreak and trauma that they experience because of people's unfaithfulness and inability to practice sex in the way that God designed it. Another objection that actually comes from the church is, well, but Pastor Aaron, don't you know that you know, the Bible says all sin is the same and we're all sinners and my sin's no worse or no better than your sin and all sin is really equal in God's sight? Yeah, the only problem with that is that's not what the Bible teaches. Did you know that? There is no verse in the Bible that says all sin is the same. As a matter of fact, I've got eight right here that would say otherwise. Deuteronomy 15 refers specifically to sins of the high hand as opposed to just your regular sin. Think middle finger pointing to the sky. That's kind of what he's meaning. Direct defiance of God. Deuteronomy 18, God specifically lists certain sins as abominations. Proverbs 6, there are seven things listed that God says he hates. Luke 20, Jesus tells the Pharisees, get this, that they will receive the greater condemnation for their sins of religious pride. You can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. John 19, Jesus tells Pilate that Judas has committed the greater sin. Matthew 12 and Mark 3, Jesus says that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. In 1 John 5, we looked at it last fall, the Apostle John says there's sin that leads to death and there's sin that does not lead to death. But the one that I put up here for you to see on a slide is 1 Corinthians 6, 18. The Apostle Paul, in talking about sexual immorality, he says, all other sin that a person commits is outside of their body. But the person who sins sexually sins against their own body. And as we learned last week, that we are created in the image and the likeness of God. So we're actually, when we sin sexually, there's something unique about it. There is something different about sexual sin that is an affront on the image and the likeness of God. It is weighty. It is a weighty thing. Now the truth is, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. There is no one in here who has any right to throw a stone because each and every one of us are sinful in many ways, have sinned, are working towards sanctification by God's grace. But there is no biblical warrant to say that all sins are just equal. No, some sins have devastating effects on people. However, God's grace is greater than any sin. 1 Corinthians 6, just a few verses before what I was just talking about, sexual sin. The Apostle Paul is listing a, a whole list of sins that will keep one excluded from the kingdom of God. 
People who practice such things will not be a part of the kingdom of God. And it includes such things as sexual sin and fornication, but also includes such things as, you know, jealousy. So we've got to check our hearts on that one, right? But then he says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. There is no sin that is beyond the saving reach and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His grace is greater than any sin. And all who come to him in genuine repentance and faith will find forgiveness, will find mercy, will find help in time of need. Our God is a God of grace. So even though the problem is, is very real, and even though the problem is very large, our God's grace is even larger. And I want you to be encouraged with that thought. As we discuss the idea of marriage and sex, we can so easily focus on the problem and yet give very little attention to the fact that God is so amazing. His grace is so rich. His grace is so powerful. And I would say his grace is transformative. His grace changes us. All right, we made it through. Two more. This is fun, right? We're having fun. This is, this is how everyone chooses to spend their Sunday mornings, right? I am having fun. I don't know if you are. I am having fun. <laughs> Number 14, death and the intermediate state. Let me read this statement to you, okay? Because it's not just the word church. It's not just we have these practices. We have something coming, okay? Should the Lord tarry, listen to this, except for those who are alive when Christ appears, everyone will experience death. Even though Jesus has conquered death through his death and resurrection, death remains the last enemy to be defeated fully. When Christians die, their spirit passes immediately into the presence of Christ where they enjoy conscious fellowship with him until the day of the resurrection. When non-believers die, their spirit passes immediately into Hades where they also await the day of resurrection and the final judgment. Let me draw out four main points from this. Number one. Everybody is going to die. Happy Sunday, right? <laughs> Everyone is going to die. And, and that seems like such a, a, uh, a baseline point to make. Why would I actually draw that out as one of the essential points? Well, I think it's because we live with a sense of invincibility in our 21st century Western lifestyle. Would you agree with that? I, I think especially for those of us who are younger, we, we don't think about death. We don't think about our mortality. We don't think about the latter part of our life. But also, just there's a profound arrogance in our culture. I've heard people say things like, the first human beings that are going to live to be 500 years old have already been born. I'm like, I do not want to see how wrinkly that person is. Like, that is not going to be me. It says in Hebrews that it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So it, there is a time appointed by God. Our days are, are fixed by God when each of us will, if Jesus doesn't return, each of us will face death. And it just bears reminding because people in our culture don't believe that. They don't live that out. And sometimes when you can actually get someone to slow down and think for a minute about their own mortality, they actually start to realize, oh, actually, maybe I do need to take some of this conversation about God and salvation seriously. I had a conversation with someone recently where uh, this person was kind of on death's, death's bed. I think it was a parent, an, older, an elderly parent. Death's door, pastor showed up. They wanted to pray. They wanted to talk. They wanted to meet. And then made kind of a miraculous turnaround recovery. Pastor reached out and said, hey, can we talk? Can we meet again? And the person said, no, I'm actually feeling pretty good now. Thanks. And went back with their life. All will die. 
and after that, face judgment. However, number two, I want you to see this. Death is not the final stage, okay? We're talking about right now, we're talking about life after death, but I need you to understand as Christians, we believe in a life after life after death, right? There's another age to come. Romans 6 says this, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You probably saw or heard me use the phrase, the intermediate state. When you die, when I die, when anyone dies, your body and your soul are separated. Your body goes into the ground, your soul goes uh, to wherever it is that you will go based on your standing before God. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. That's why we call it an intermediate state. And I will even confess to you that growing up in the church, growing up as a, a church kid, I had all sorts of misconceptions about this. I didn't understand how the return of Jesus worked and how death worked. And I honestly thought that, uh, that you know, maybe we'd be kind of see through like the cartoons and, and some of those sorts of thoughts were in my mind. And I want you to understand that the Bible clearly teaches that there is life after death, but there's a life after that. And especially for those of us who believe in Christ Jesus. Number three, the sad news, the heartbreaking news is that for non-Christians to depart is to experience torment and fear in Hades. There's a, there's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 16 where there's, there's two men. One was poor and, and a beggar and one was rich and just looked down on him. And it says when they died, the, the poor man went to be, he calls it Abraham's side, or if you have a King James, Abraham's bosom in paradise, a, a place of rest, a place of, of peace. But that the rich man, the one who did not have faith, he says went to the torment of Hades. And he asked, he said, can anything be done? Can you, can you get me out of this? Can you bring some relief, a, a drop of cool water? And he says, no. Well, can you at least go warn my brothers? Can you at least go warn my family? No, they didn't listen to the prophets. They're not going to listen to you even if you came back as a ghost. It's a heartbreaking thought. I, I, I will tell you bluntly, I wish that doctrines like this were not part of what the Bible teaches because it is heartbreaking. I myself have loved ones who have passed away. But I don't, I don't have any reason to think that they knew Jesus. It's heartbreaking. That ought, to, that ought to put an urgency in us, amen? Number four, for Christians, however, to depart is to be in paradise with Christ. Luke 23, and Jesus speaking to the thief on the cross, the one who repents, he says, remember me when your kingdom comes. Again, that kingdom's coming. He says, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, he's talking about how hard his life is. And there's times when he just desires to depart and to go be with Christ. And he says, well, that's far better. Listen, the, the, the struggles, the trials that you face in your life, one day you're going to die. And that's literally the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. I mean that a little bit jokingly, but I really don't mean that jokingly at all. Think about it. What's the worst possible thing that could happen to you? Somebody takes your life, you die, then what? You get to go be with Jesus. You get to experience the fullness of relationship, his presence. And so we're waiting. This, this intermediate state is a period of waiting 
We actually see waiting in the Bible portrayed both from believers and non-believers. The non-believers in, in Hades are waiting. There's a fearful expectation of judgment. But in heaven, the book of Revelation tells us that the, the, the saints, the redeemed believers, are waiting and they're crying out, How long, O Lord? How long until you vindicate yourself? How long until Jesus returns? And so the greatest, greatest news that I have to point you forward to is that one day Christ will return. His kingdom is coming. It's going to be great. It's going to be glorious. Let me read this statement to you. Can you put it up on the screen, please? I think I accidentally deleted it out of my notes. I'm really excited to read it. Can you throw it up there? Thank you. We believe that Christ will one day appear physically and publicly when he returns, he will bring about the ultimate defeat of Satan, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, and the eternal blessing of the righteous. At that time, the kingdom of God will be completely fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells and which he will be worshipped forever. And those who have rejected Jesus will spend eternity in the conscious torment of hell. I want to give you five points. Number one, Christ's appearing will be public and it will be Physical, Revelation 1-7 says he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Do not believe what some of these so-called Christian religions or Christian cults will tell you that Jesus has already returned in some way. In fact, he himself warns us, if you see people saying that they're the Christ, don't believe. It will be a public event. It will be a physical event. It will be something that every eye will see when Jesus comes back. You won't be left guessing. Can we just put it at that? Number two, it is not that we will be raptured away or going away to go off beyond the galaxy, but that the kingdom of God is coming to earth. I was listening to uh, the radio, the Christian radio, with my daughters last week, and it had some song. It was a great song, all this stuff about God's love and wonderful stuff. And then it said this line. It said, when he returns to take me home beyond this galaxy, and I turned the radio off and I went into full dad rant mode. Pray for my kids. Being the children of a pastor has got to be awful. He is not coming to take us away beyond this galaxy. God said his creation is good, and though it has been marred and broken by sin, we await a new heavens and a new earth, a kingdom that is to come. And that verse in 1 Thessalonians 4 that talks about being caught up or raptured, the imagery is that of a returning king coming back into his city and the people rushing out of the city to welcome their returning king and then parading and partying and partying with him back into the city as he comes back in. That's that imagery. So, so I hope you understand the point I'm getting at is that our eternity will be spent in a restored earth, a new heavens, a new Jerusalem, the city of Zion where God dwells. I want you to see that eternity will be embodied and it will be physical. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches this very clearly. Again, some of you have misconceptions. I just saw this on a cartoon with my daughters yesterday where the character died and then they were a see-through ghost and that's just how they were going to be. I restrained myself from dad rant mode. I just want you to know I'm growing in sanctification as well. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul just, he kind of loses his mind a little bit trying to talk about what the, the resurrection body will be like and he kind of fails for language, but we know this. What is, what is now perishable will be imperishable. What is now weak will be glorious. What is now lowly will be heavenly. It's gonna be a lot better than whatever you got right now, okay? Aches, pains, sickness, disease, death itself, gone forever, amen? And it will be physical. And there's all sorts of questions about, well, what is that going to look like? We'll be able to fly in heaven? I don't know. The Bible doesn't answer those questions. So quit asking. Just trust that it's going to be better than what we have now. 
That's fine. You can ask him if you want. I'm not really that uptight about it. And lastly, I want you to understand this. The new heavens and the new earth will be perfect. This verse in 2 Peter 3.13. It will be perfect shalom. It will be perfect peace. As we saw, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All of the devastating effects of sin, listen to this. Not only will they not continue forward, but they will all be healed through the blood of Christ. I don't, know, I don't remember exactly where I heard it, but I love the statement. I heard somewhere from a preacher says that in eternity, Jesus is the only one who's going to bear scars. But we will all be healed. We'll all be changed. So there we did. Doctrinal statement. Now listen, because we have said from the beginning, we don't just want doctrines to be head knowledge and information. We want to affect how we live. I want you to ask yourself, how should these doctrines affect us? How should we live? Remember what we read in, in, in 2 Peter about what sort of lives should we live in holiness and godliness? Let me give you four things that I think would be appropriate for us to reflect on. There may be others for you personally, but these are the four that I, I wanted to speak to us. Number one is this. We should be seeking to live lives of holiness. 2 Peter 3.11, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Listen, I don't know when the kingdom will come. I don't know the day that Jesus will return. The only thing I know is we're closer now than we've ever been. That's funnier than you thought it was, okay? <laughs> You'll get that on the drive home. And the question is this, as the end grows nearer and nearer, how should we live our lives? How should our lives reflect him and not our culture? Our culture is a very powerful force. It's really powerful for us. It can feel incredibly humiliating to feel like you're uncool. I mean, coolness is the currency of the day. But what God says is more valuable than coolness is holiness. And while we understand that we all stumble in many ways, we have grace for one another, and that our goal, our compass heading is, I want to pursue a life of holiness by his grace. Number two, how should we live? We should live our lives with other believers. As part of God's people, as a part of the church, don't neglect to meet together. Look, you're here because at some level you understand that being a part of a church is important. That's great. I will tell you that the temptation for us is not to instantly, you know, wander away from the faith and apostatize. The book of Hebrews talks about drifting. It's just a really slow little drifting. We all start to drift. You have to fight for, prioritize relationship, amen? It can be really easy to just get busy and not in close relationship with God's people all the more as we see the day coming. Number three, I think we should live with patience, but also with eager longing for Jesus' appearance. Okay? We do need to be patient. We don't exactly know when he's going to come. It's already been a couple thousand years. Maybe it's going to be a couple thousand more. We don't know. However, it also talks about in 2 Peter 3, the, the waiting and hastening. So I want, you to, I want you to feel permission to pray, God, when will you return? When will you send Jesus to return? Would you let it be soon? There's that prayer, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. Patience, but also eagerness. And then number four, lastly, I think we should be passionate in sharing the gospel. As we see the fact that those who do not repent, who do not place their faith in Jesus, will spend eternity separated from him. That ought to break our hearts, amen? And there ought to be an urgency and a passion and even a joy in sharing the gospel. Because it's 2 Peter 3.9, it says, it's God's desire that none would perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's how big his heart of love is. That's how big his heart of love is. So do we have an eagerness and a passion and joy in sharing the gospel? 
It's in that heart and in that mind I want to call us to a time of response now. We're going to respond as we do in a, a couple of ways. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. I'll invite the financial stewards to come forward now. If you want to give online or text to give, there's information about that in your handout. If you're a guest or a visitor, you're not under any obligation to give. This is something we as a church family do to support the work of Jesus in this church. And, but more importantly even than that, it's a worship act. It's an act for us to say our finances are not the most important thing God is and we want to give generously to him. So I encourage you to do that. You can collect the offering now if you would. While they're doing that, let me run through some discussion questions because I'm coming from the assumption that you are going to be uh, with other believers this week talking about the things of God. And so I want to give you some things maybe to help start conversation. Our community groups talk about these. Uh, I got some good feedback from some community group leaders even this morning saying the, the questions were helpful and so I'm thankful for that. So here's this. Why is it so important to be a part of a community of faith? And what happens when we don't prioritize relationship with Christians? Talk about that. Number two, how does Jesus minister his grace to us in baptism and in communion? And what part of these practices is the human action? And which part is the divine action? My suspicion, the reason why I put that question, my suspicion is that many of you think of communion and baptism as merely stuff that we do and not a way that God ministers to us. Number three, how can we as Christians hold to what the Bible says about marriage and sex while still being loving like Jesus? Just call me crazy, but I think that's, I think that's something that he could have us do and he's calling us to. Number four, what misconceptions have you possibly held regarding death in the intermediate state? Uh, on the website, when we post this up, I'll put a, a few recommended uh, additional reading resources. And one of them is a book called Heaven and Hell by Edward Donnelly. It's one of the best short reads um, on this topic if you feel like this is maybe something that you need to grow in your understanding. Number five, how can we look forward to the return of Jesus with both eagerness and patience? And then lastly, in light of the coming of the kingdom, how can we encourage one another to pursue lives of both godliness and evangelism? Okay? I put those two things together because sometimes we can get so focused on living godly lives that we forget we need to rub shoulders with some sinful people, amen? Or we can be so focused on, you know, relating to those in the world and the culture that we forget, no, God does want us to live differently, amen? There's a tension there. Don't shy away from it. We're also gonna respond with the Lord's Supper. Perfect. Ties in very nicely to the sermon today. We're going to do this as we do every week as a celebration of God's grace, his, his, his giving of his son, the, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood. Again, with, with a, such a wide variety of topics that we address today, as you celebrate the Lord's table, maybe there's some specific thing that you want to respond to Jesus in. But the number one thing I would want to encourage you all in is I want you to see this today as a way that Jesus ministers his grace to you. That even as you take the bread, think that he nourishes us spiritually, that he feeds us. We're going to respond with singing, Elizabeth, and we're going, to, we're going to celebrate. We're going to even sing a new song here in a little minute about the day when Jesus returns. And so with that, I'm going to invite you to stand. I'll pray, and we'll begin our time of response together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you give us your word, that our lives and our church may be established on the truth of your word and not just the opinions of man. God, I pray that you would give us joy now as we respond through singing and through the celebration of the Lord's table. God, help us to reflect on your gospel, your, your broken body, your shed blood, your death and your resurrection for us now as we celebrate. We pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.